Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Today's episode 203, and we're sticking with the theme that we had last week, Legacy Motor Club. They are on the up and up. Things are looking good for them, especially as they get ready to switch over to Toyota for next year. We had Joey Cohen last week. We got Dave Ellens this week, crew chief for Eric Jones on the 43 car. Has been for the last couple years. He's got a few championships to his resume as an engineer on the cup side and as a crew chief on the Xfinity Series side. And he has an interesting story of how he got into racing, the stops that he had along the way. We went over all of that and more in our chat, so excited for you guys to hear that. We'll also chat a little bit about Texas and preview Talladega coming up this weekend, the middle race of the round of 12. But before we do any of that, we got to pay homage to a NASCAR Hall of Famer and Northeast Modified Racing legend in this week's Wayback segment. Papa Siegel has more. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 203. Last week, we looked back on Sam Ard a driver you likely had heard of, but maybe didn't know that much about. I think that was the case for our host. Well, if it worked last week, I say let's try it again. So this week, our Wayback Lens focuses its attention on a NASCAR Hall of Famer you may not know that much about. At the very top of the list of all-time NASCAR champions sits two men. No, I'm not talking about King Richard, or Jimmy Johnson, or Dale Earnhardt. Have you all been paying attention? In episode 161, we recounted the accomplishments of Richie Evans, the greatest modified racer in NASCAR history, who won nine NASCAR modified championships, including a ridiculous eight in a row from 1978 to 1985. The other man who won nine NASCAR Series championships was Mike Stefanik. Seven of Stefanik's championships also came in the Modifieds between 1989 and 2006, with the other two coming in the K&N E-Series in 1997 and 98. If that wasn't enough, Stefanik ran the trucks in 1999 posting 10 top 10 finishes and taking home Rookie of the Year honors. Like many other speed demons, Stefanik wasn't satisfied with racing cars. He also liked to pilot planes. Four years ago, on September 15, 2019, Stefanik took off from Rhode Island in a friend's ultralight. He was heading back to the airport when the aircraft lost power and crashed in the woods near Sterling, Connecticut. He was rushed to the hospital, but died from his injuries. Mike Stefanik was named one of NASCAR's 10 greatest modified drivers in 2003. In fact, the only one above him was Richie Evans, 
Number two on the list ain't too shabby, and the only one above you is the Rapid Roman. Stefanik also was enshrined in the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2022, and he was named one of NASCAR's 75 greatest drivers earlier this year. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duve. Yes, thank you, Dad. I, I so vividly remember the day that Mike Stefanik passed away, actually. Uh, as my dad said, four years ago, around this time, so very timely way back segment. It was before I really knew anything about him. Uh, I was, I guess, what, twenty. Three, it, I don't know, whatever it was. I was young and I didn't really know anything about mods or the Northeast or Stefanik. And I was at New Hampshire Motor Speedway covering a K&N East race there. The Modifieds were also there, so I was helping out up there. And we got word, I believe, that night that Mike Stefanik had passed away. And I was watching grown men in the Modified Garage and the K&N East Garage brought to tears uh, because they had such strong relationships and ties to Mike and the Stefanik family and just that awesome-looking number 51 modified car that always was running up front. To my dad's point, right? Modified titles, K&N titles, um, which was then Bush North, obviously. And, you know, he obviously ran in trucks, too. So he was running the gamut. The thing that I will always remember about Mike Stefanik, and it probably is not just the only thing that he will be remembered for, but maybe for my generation, the most remembered for thing is the battle at the beach. I don't remember who it was involved with, the crash that took him out of that race, but I just so remember vividly. He's sitting on a stoop outside the care center on Speed Channel. Ray Dunlap's going to interview him, and he just sits there stone-faced, not even looking at Ray not looking into the camera, and he just keeps saying, it's bullshit, it's bullshit, and it was the funniest thing ever, but I think honestly kind of encapsulates everything that Mike Stefanik was about, and that's no bullshit, kind of like Ryan Priest, a fellow Northeast Modified guy says, Mike Stefanik was a racer, he was a winner, and he was an icon and remains one in NASCAR, in the Northeast, and on the NASCAR Wheel Modified Tour, so... R.I.P. to a legend, as always, as we reflect on the anniversary of his passing. But that was a great way back segment, Papa Siegel. We appreciate you. Let's get this episode started, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned <laughs> And throw it straight over to our interview with Dave Ellens, crew chief of the 43 car at Legacy Motor Club. He obviously has done a whole lot in the last couple years with Eric Jones, his driver, He's a Michigan man. I did not know that he's a Michigan State man, which made me very, very happy. As I said at the beginning of this show, we talked about a whole lot, sprayed a lot of fields, covered a lot of ground, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear all of it. So I'll get out the way and let you do that. Here's Dave Ellens of Legacy Motor Club on Victory Lane. Pleasure to welcome on to the show today, the crew chief of the 43 Chevrolet for Legacy Motor Club and Eric Jones, Dave Ellens, or as your real name is, especially on Racing Reference in preparation for this interview, David. I have a question because my name is also David. I'm Davey, but birth name's David. Is that something that like your mom calls you when she's mad at you? Like, Does anybody call you David or is it all Dave? It was my grandma that called me David, and uh, my my first boss that I had called me David, and everybody else has called me Dave since then. So, 
I feel that. Because I'm not a David. I'm less formal than that. I think that you may be on the same wavelength. You don't strike me as a David. It's a little too formal. Yeah, the, the David carries a lot of weight to it. Dave's a lot easier. It's yeah, a lot more re relaxing to be a Dave. Right. You got one syllable. You can't waste your time on two syllables. So, yeah. Dave, uh, I had one of your bosses, maybe Joey Cohen, on last week. And uh, we talked about the recent uptick of Legacy Motor Club. Not just you guys on the 43, but the 42 has shown incredible upticks in performance with Carson Hosevar at the wheel. I asked him, so I'll ask you the same question. What do you think the reason is for this recent uptick in speed? Can you pinpoint any particular thing? I mean, I think it's hard to, you know, just nail down one thing uh, that's making us faster right now. Obviously, Carson coming in, uh, he's done a, a spectacular job in his first handful of races in a cup car. That helps us out. You know, the more speed the 42 car has, the more speed we're going to have, uh, better notes to take from. But you know, I think overall, it's just uh, an everybody working hard uh throughout the summer you know the beginning of the year we were so far off that um you know there was a lot of bad around what we were doing and everybody worked hard through those times and you know trying to get better in every area not just one area you know from engineering to our car prep um all of it has gotten better over time you know and i I think that's showing right now. The work we did months ago is now showing through now. So um, it's very hard to, you know, get the speed in these cars, and then it's even harder to keep it in the cars. Uh, so we'll have to continue working as hard as we had throughout the summer months uh, to keep it going for the end of the year and into next year. Well, whatever you guys got, you got it good. And that was on display at Texas. I know, obviously, the day did not end the way that you guys were envisioning, and the box score does not tell the full story of the speed that you guys had, where you guys ran. I guess it just kind of comes down to, Dave, as I think Joey Logano put it, you run back there with the squirrels, you get your nuts busted. And unfortunately, that's kind of what happened to you guys. Just a tough ending to a really good day, it seemed like, in Texas. Yeah, I mean, we had uh, a bunch of speed at Texas. It was uh, really fun to have that much uh, speed into the car. You know, the five car was uh, pretty fast as well. Um, had everybody covered there. But, you know, unfortunately... You know, that that last uh, caution there, we we chose to come down and take tires. You know, I was I was hoping we had enough laps to run to come back up through the field and, you know, maybe challenge the five car with some tires on it uh, compared to being straight up. And unfortunately, you know, I think 17, 16 guys stayed out there on that uh, caution, which, yeah. you know, I was thinking more like 10, you know, maybe max that would stay out sure. there. And we're so far back there. You know, I think Joey put it very well. Uh, you're in a position that we shouldn't be in, you know, and unfortunately we came out the wrong side of it, just, you know, trying to get too much from a position we never should have been in. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, it, it's tough when you have a race car that good and you finish that poorly with it. So it stings a lot, um, but it also happens, you know, and we'll just have to work hard to get another, another quick car that we can do that with. And hopefully the outcome's better for us. So you've been, uh, you're no stranger to NASCAR and to crew chiefing, obviously. We'll get to kind of your story and how you got here. But in terms of being a crew chief in the Cup Series, relatively speaking, you're still a bit new at it. This is your second year. You obviously have a win under your belt already. The speed, as we've talked about, is pretty evident in the last couple of weeks. How do you feel like you as a crew chief and you personally, Dave, are adjusting to Cup Series racing in the next-gen car in general? Because it's a stark contrast from Xfinity. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely, you know, a lot different than what the Xfinity series was. Uh, fortunately, as an engineer, I was able to work with a lot of good cup teams um, and get a lot of experience that way. But, you know, competing on the cup side is, is a lot more intense than what the Xfinity side is. So it, it's a different challenge um, coming over this series for the last couple of years. I feel like I've, I've took it to the challenge rather well. Um, this next gen car has really fit it into my style of, um, you know, crew chiefing and kind of running the team in a manner um, that just fits with this car. You know, it, it doesn't allow for a lot of uh, work in gray areas and, uh, you know, kind of working around the rules. It's, it's pretty much straight up and um, you have to bring a good product. You have to bring a car that drives well and also has speed in it. And it's, it's just a lot of hard work with this car. And I think, you know, that's something that I enjoy uh, doing and, you know, working with the guys to try to figure out the best way to, to get the car to perform. Um, and I, I think it's went well so far. You know, I, obviously we all want more and want to do more wins and more of everything. Right. But I, I think we've got a solid foundation um, and really look forward to what we can do uh, in the coming year. It's interesting because a lot of crew chiefs, and I'm sure you've worked with a lot of them as well, your many different stops, they love the gray area and they love working within that rule book to try to push the limits. Sometimes they push it a little bit too much. We all know that. But it seems like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's not that that is gone nowadays. It's just that you have to be so perfect and so on top of it with the area and I guess the rules that you are given with the next gen era because it's a spec car that it makes it that much more satisfying when you do hit the setup and you do roll off the truck really fast like you guys have. You think that's a fair statement? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the, the gray area that you have on this car is is really, really small. You know, it, we have pages on pages and documents of how to assemble this car and what we're supposed to do with it. Um, and NASCAR has clearly stated their intentions of it. You know, and there's been some people in the gray areas. I, I myself have gotten in trouble a couple times with this car, but um, you can't rely on that for the speed in the vehicle the way you used to be able to, you know, in, in the Xfinity series and, you know, the old uh, cup cars, you could you could get into the gray area and get an advantage that was a tenth, two tenths of a second advantage, you know, and you could keep that for a couple of weeks um, before they kind of figured it out. And, you know, maybe even longer than that, you know, here, if you find something like that, it's the advantage is much smaller on the stopwatch and NASCAR is going to find it almost immediately because it, it is clear cut. So it's, it makes it to where it's every detail on the car, every detail on how you set it up. You know, every detail and how the engineers work with it and the mechanics work with it. So there's there's a lot more just work that goes into making it right instead of chasing a trick. Where does the driver fit into that equation? Because he obviously needs to be talented behind the wheel. And I think Eric has a lot to do with the success you guys are having as well. Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, there's more pressure on the drivers now than there ever is. You're right. They, their restarts have to be perfect. Their pit road execution has to be perfect because, you know, everybody you know for the most part everybody's running the same speed you you normally get a group from like you know fourth back to 16th that you could flip-flop them in any position and that's where they're going to run you know so you're down to restarts you're down you know you got a lot of guys that are out there blocking you know trying to make their cars as wide as they can um but it's all on them to keep that spot because if you keep that spot you're going to stay there for the whole run. So there's definitely, uh, you know, a lot of, lot of pressure on those guys to do well. Um, Eric has done a phenomenal job for us. I think we had the most green flag passes of the year. 
Um, his restart stats have been uh, really well this year, and he's definitely been a foundation of our success. So it's been been fun to watch him do that. You know, unfortunately, our Texas restart there, we got got a little too much on that one. But, yeah. you know, the restarts leading up to that, uh, he's done a phenomenal job all year. I read in an article a couple of years back that you were kind of waiting for the next-gen car. And, you know, you may have had some job offers when you were at JRM, winning back-to-back championships to potentially go up and become a Cup Series crew chief. But you chose to wait and strike while the iron was hot when the next-gen car was debuted a couple of years ago with what was then Petty GMS, now Legacy Motor Club. Is there any particular reason for that? Clearly, like you said, this car really does fit your style as a crew chief. But was there any particular reason that you knew that or that you were waiting for this opportunity? And, you know, obviously being at JRM is uh, it's a good place to work and uh, a lot of good people there and having success. It's hard. It's hard to leave a place uh, when things are going so well, you know, and it, it was definitely a tough choice to leave there. But at the same time, like you said, you know, th- this car provides a different set of circumstances that I really felt like I I could be a, a good addition to a company to, to help um, get some performance out of this car. So it's definitely, you know whatever whenever we started talking about this car you know like 2019 uh somewhere in there you know that's really when i was like man i want to come in with that car because i can't come in past it because i'll be too far behind on the rules you know you, you have to be involved from the very beginning to have an understanding of what's going on with that car and at the same time you know i had been out of cup racing for um six or seven years at that point going back to the cup car with the old rules I would have been so far behind the other guys that I couldn't have caught up there. So it was a clean break, you know, that put me on an even slate, you know, to everybody else in the cup series in a package that I felt was going to suit myself very well. So uh, definitely, you know, it worked out well uh, waiting on it. I know a lot of people dislike <laughs> the changes that were made and uh, the limitations that the car has, but I, I've really embraced it and it's been a lot of fun for me. So just like your driver, you are also a Michigan man. I went to Michigan State. Just get that out the way. All right, let's get this out of the way. Are you a Michigan guy, Michigan State? What, what, what's your Michigan allegiance? State. Michigan State. So. Yes? For real? Yeah. Are, you, are you pulling my leg? No, I'm, I'm for real. Michigan State. Hell yeah, yeah. Dave. Best guest <laughs> I've ever had on the show. Uh, we can talk about our football coach and the travesty of that later on. But um, anyway, so you're from Michigan, just like your driver. I know that growing up, you know, your family was into racing, RC cars, snowmobiles i think your dad ran an imca modified so i think it's kind of fair to say that this has always been in your blood and not that you didn't have a choice but this is always going to be involved in your life somehow being in motorsports and being in racing it seemed like yeah absolutely you know that, that was a big part of uh growing up um you know racing ourselves and then you know watching nascar uh, going down to michigan international speedway and watching the races uh twice a year down there um, huge part of, you know, who my family was and who I was growing up. And, you know, I, I couldn't think of anything else I wanted to do when I was in high school, trying to figure out what my career was going to be. So definitely, uh, you know, I, I heard about being an engineer in motorsports and I, I really, uh, liked the sounds of that, you know, and I, I was going to race something. It was just a matter if I was going to do it for a living or not. Right. So I was going to be around it. So I might as well do it for a living. And, uh, you know, it, it's been really good to me, uh, the last 20 years, uh, down here working in racing. So I've enjoyed it. 20 years. Does it feel that long? Doesn't feel that long until 
you know, we got some younger engineers here at uh, Legacy Motor Club, and I start telling stories about like Mark Martin and you know MV2 U.S. Army with Joni yeah. Machek, and uh, they start laughing at me because they don't remember any of those times, and I'm like, that feels like yesterday. So some of them that- probably weren't even alive. Uh, there's a couple that that weren't alive, you know, or Man. too young to even know what was going on. So That's rough. Uh, it seems like yesterday, but it, it it's getting to be a long time ago. So I also read, I think you were, you know, you saw an article in Winston Cup scene that there was actually a way to study this and work in it. Went to Clemson, graduated in 03. And I know while you were at Clemson, you worked at Jasper Racing whenever you had some breaks and stuff like that. And you wound up getting a job in the sport after that. But even before college, you knew that you wanted to be in it. And it seems like getting that degree was just a formality to what you were going to do after that. Yeah, it, it, it was. You know, my my grandpa was the one that read Winston Cup scene and, you know, showed me the article. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Because I was at a time in high school where everybody's supposed to be figuring out what you're going to do, right? And they all picking colleges are going to go to. I'm like, I, you know, I, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know if I want to be, you know, a logger like my family is or do something different. And my my grandfather read that article and I'm like, this is what I want to do. And Im- immediately once I read that, you know, started putting a plan together to follow through on that. And uh, it, it's been, you know, the only thing that I've wanted to do and the only thing that I've done, you know, since high school. So let's talk about Jasper first. Um, I remember that team. I have like a bumper sticker in my old childhood bedroom of the Jasper 77 with that yellow and red. Um, what were you doing for them when you were on breaks? Because again, you're still a college student. So yep. in your later teenage years, early 20s, I'm sure you were as green as they come, just like a lot of people that you work with now. What were your du- duties and roles on kind of a day-to-day thing when you were helping out? Yeah, I mean, Jasper was a fairly small team at the time, um, you know, they were making their own bodies, um, but like the engineering side, they had uh, one engineer uh, that was working there at the time. Uh, Mark Hara was a, a part owner of that team, and he was really big on engineering and trying to bring it in. So he gave me an opportunity to intern there. And, you know, it was a lot of work on, you know, data systems and then uh, measuring parts and uh, the Romer arm at that time was fairly new. So, you know, scanning bodies by by an individual point, not a complete cloud, right? Individual points all the way around the body and just trying to get an idea and get some of those tools, you know, into that team that, you know, really didn't have the resources. So uh, it was a good learning experience for me because um, they you know, had a very limited budget, but they had aspirations of, you know, trying to all get all the engineering components over there. So it's a good way just to get on the ground floor and get an understanding of the basics there. So Jasper, MB2, like you mentioned, I believe you had to stop at Penske as well before you went to Red Bull Racing. I want to stick on that for a second because I've talked to a couple other people over the last couple of years on this show that have had any association with Red Bull, spotters, drivers, crew chiefs, engineers like yourself, and they said by far that that was one of the most fun places to work, regardless of how they were running, regardless of how it ended. They just had a really good time being a part of Red Bull racing. I'm curious if you could share your experience working for them and if you felt the same way. No, that was absolutely a a really good place to work. Um, You know, they took uh, very good care of their employees. Um, The people that worked there were very passionate about racing and, you know, everybody enjoyed coming to work and it was, 
is a place where you didn't you didn't have to worry about you know some of the drama that you have in other organizations you know they they had the money to do it they had the resources they had the people you know everything that you needed was there you know and there were there was no excuse to not run good. It was all right in front of you. So um, I think that provided for an environment that you don't see um, at, at many teams, right? Because they, there's no excuse. You you could go out and get whatever you needed to to function well there. Um, and I I enjoyed my time there. Unfortunately, you know, I, Red Bull uh, decided that the marketing side of them didn't work for it, and they shut that down a little bit early, but. You know, I think that'd still be a great organization if they were still around right now. I, I would pay to see Max Verstappen race at Daytona and see how he'd do. I, I don't that think he'd do cool. too well, but I'd pay to see it. <laughs> Absolutely. So after that, I believe if I have my timelines correct, you wound up at the mothership, Hendrick Motorsports. I'm curious, having worked for, I guess at that point, probably five or six, whatever it was, teams that range from smaller mom and pop to bigger corporate yep. Penske, Red Bull, that type of thing. What was it like getting into Hendrick Motorsports' walls and seeing how they operate things on their huge campus with four race cars and just all that goes into making that machine go? Yeah, I mean, getting over to Hendrick was, you know, a completely different experience for me. Um, you know, they they were at a point where they had everything going right. You know, they had systems in place. There, there's no building. There's no, you know, there's no excuse on anything there, right? It's kind of similar to what I had at Red Bull. Sure. Um, so it was, it was a place, you know, I, I feel like MB2 and Jasper and some of the smaller places that I've been at, you know, I learned a lot of my basic knowledge there and understanding of, you know, how to make a car go fast, you know, and as you get into these bigger places, there, there's more to racing than just making a fast car. You know, there's, there's, you know, sides with working with different departments, you know, and everybody has to interject their, their opinion of what's going on. And you, you can't cover all the ground that Hendrick is covering in all these different departments. So, you know, trying to figure out how to utilize all these departments and understand how they're all working together uh, was a big part of going over there. And then also the, the sure, the, the determination to win um, that Hendrick has over any other organization was uh, it was really neat to learn that, that passion that they have over there. Um, and it's, you know, it's beyond it's beyond parts and pieces. Um, you know, their their drive to win over there is instilled in everybody um, from top to bottom, and it's it's almost contagious when you get over there. So definitely, I uh, had a good group of people that I worked with over there. Um, you know, some of my experiences on that forty eight car, you know, they they taught me a lot about how to win. You know, and how to win consistently, um, and that—that's the hardest thing to do. It seems like you know everybody can get a one-off win here and there, you know, but to win consistently—that's—that's um, that's a challenge for you know a lot of people out there. And they—they they definitely wrote the book on that, um, and it was fun to just kind of see inside of that for a little bit. Yeah, co-authored by Jimmy, Chad, and and Ron Malik, the car chief, I'm sure. And, yeah. You know, to your point, you learn how to win with them. You learn what it took. And you climbed the top of the mountain and you planted your flag cemently up there because you guys won the championship back in 2013 with the 48 car and Jimmy. I'm curious for you at that point, if you could take me back there, which is now 10 years ago. So sorry for aging yeah. ourselves here. Yeah. Uh, the fact that you could then call yourself a cup series champion, come a long way from racing snowmobiles and RC cars in Michigan. What did that mean to you to accomplish that? Yeah. I mean, that, 
I don't think I, I don't think I thought that would be a possibility, you know, starting out, you know, you, you, you started some of these smaller organizations and, you know, it, it's a grind to, you know, even get to the spot where you win one race, let alone, you know, winning a championship. So, you know, I, I remember, you know, the night before the Homestead race and uh, hanging out with Ron Malik and, you know, just sitting there like I'm all, you know, nervous and he's just calm as can be right. Like it's what, what's it going to hurt? He's like, worst thing that's going to happen is, you know, we're not going to win. We try again next year. And I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, I'm just about ready to throw up because I'm so nervous about the chance to win this championship. Right. And you win it. And then it's like, you don't even know what to say. You don't know what to feel. Right. Like, it's just so amazing that you, that you're able to accomplish something like that. And, uh, it was, it's just, it's a sense of, uh, validity for me, you know, that what I was doing was correct. You know, some, some of the things that I've, I've learned along my way, like, it, it was right, you know, and it could fit in in the right place and be an asset to uh, one of these organizations that wins all the time. That was what five or six for for you guys. I don't know what it was, but it was number one for you. Yeah. Was it weird because everybody was kind of like, "Oh yeah, another one," and you were like, "This is the best moment of my life. Why are we not yeah. going crazy?" Yeah, no, it was it was his uh, sixth one, yeah. and yeah, absolutely. Like even in uh, victory lane, I I don't know how many races we won that year. I, I can't remember how many races we won, um, but even in victory lane, everybody's like, "Oh, spray the Gatorade, wash the car off, let's go." I'm like, "Are we going to celebrate a little bit?" No, no, we got to go back to work on Man. Monday and do the same thing next week. So, uh, yeah, that was, I think, you know, I think some of the guys enjoyed <clears throat> seeing my excitement, you know, to win the first championship. Come on, Chad. Gotta let the, gotta let the new guys celebrate a little bit, man. Yeah. Brutal. For sure. Brutal. Um, so after that, you obviously moved on to junior motorsports first time as a crew chief in the NASCAR national series. That first year, I think you worked with a, a bevy of drivers, Josh Berry, Dale jr. Kevin Harvick, Casey Kane, nothing says welcome to crew chief and at the big time NASCAR ranks, like three potential hall of famers, two for sure. And the boss man being in the seat, that must've been a, a lot to absorb in year one. Yeah, no, that was uh that was a big, big, steep learning curve right there. Sure. You know, my first race was uh, with Dale jr at Daytona and we ended up spinning out and qualifying and almost missing the race. We had to use a championship provisional to get in the race. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking my career is over before it even started. Right. I took Dale jr. To an Xfinity race and missed the race with him. Uh, so that, that was a lot, you know, my second race with Kevin Harvick, uh, was Atlanta, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Kevin called the whole race himself you know, from the driver's seat. Cause I'm just sitting there blanked out for the whole race. Uh, just kind of in awe that he's just out there doing his thing, leading, you know, he knows every adjustment he needs to make. He knows what the strategy is. So, um, you know, to be able to work with those guys, um, at the start of my crew chief and career that, that put me on a fast track of knowledge, um, you know, that, that you can't get anywhere else other than working with those guys. And I, I was very fortunate uh, to have all those groups of drivers to uh, pull that knowledge from and get an understanding and get me up to speed, you know, to set me up later in the career when I have, you know, guys that were younger and needed more help. And of course, obviously the years go by, you win back-to-back -back Xfinity championships with Willie B who's killing it right now, Tyler Reddick who's killing it right now, both in the round of 12 for the playoffs. I'm curious what it felt like for you to win a championship 
as a crew chief in Xfinity versus an engineer in Cup and, and how those two felt different or felt similar? Yeah, I mean, I think they they felt similar, but, the, you know, the, the championship, you know, with Jimmy is – it's still it's still special you know that the cup side is you know where i want to be that's you know that's what i want to do that's you know what i watched as a kid so that that's got a a, a big feeling for me to uh have that championship you know the xfinity side was amazing um you know to be able to work with william and tyler both they're they're both phenomenal race car drivers and to kind of get to watch each one of them grow through the season and get better and better week in and week out. And, you know, to finish it off with a win, you know, I, there's a lot of excitement for myself, but there's a lot of uh, excitement for those guys as well. And um, to, to watch the, the start of their careers happen, it just had a, you know, a different feeling than what the uh, cup series championship did with Jimmy. So I mentioned all those drivers you had in the first year, not to mention in the next couple you had, Bowman, Clint Boyer, Chase Elliott, Cole Custer, Kenny Habull. How about yeah. that poll? Regan Smith. And it's kind of felt not to that level, but somewhat similar with your teammate, the 42 this year. Obviously, Noah been in the car for most of the season, but Mike Rockefeller has been in it, going to be in it for the Roval. Enfinger race it at Sonoma. Carson's in it now. Not to mention Jimmy running a couple times earlier this year. What has that been like? I know that you obviously have been chilling with Eric doing your thing, but I'm sure you guys lean on each other and you and Luke have open dialogue. Has it been different or hard trying to adjust to a new driver in the 42 each week? Yeah, it's definitely a, it's a challenge for shop guys to prepare those cars with a different driver each week. Um, you know, and then our, our prep side on the engineering um, side of things, it's, it's hard to, you know, use what a new driver has until you know what they have. So, um, you know, like Josh Barry's gotten a couple of times, you know, I know Josh a little bit. I don't know how he drives a cup car, you know, so his comments and his feelings of what that car is for that weekend, you know, I really need two weekends, you know, or two intermediates to be, really be able to use them. So it's a challenge for us to utilize that 42 the way the 43 wants to do, which is for more information to make us faster in that weekend. So that, that's been a challenge for us to get through. You know, I know Luke and uh, Phil have had a big challenge on their end, you know, getting to know the driver and perform, you know, week in and week out. Fortunately, we've got a little bit of rhythm with Josevar, who's been doing an amazing job. Uh, that whole team is clicking very well right now, which uh, it's fun to see. It's exciting for the guys in the shop. Everybody's, you know, got smiles on their faces now walking around. Um, and it's just making the 43 better. And that's that's obviously what I'm looking for is the 43 to be as good as it can. But it's fun to watch those guys be good. And, you know, the help that they're providing us is uh, is really good right now. What is it about you and Eric that seemed to click so well? I mean, when you and Noah were together in Xfinity, that obviously the results spoke for themselves, right? But you and Eric seem to have really blossomed into one of the the better driver crew chief pairings in this next gen era. Can you pinpoint what it is that makes you guys so good together? Yeah, I think we're both um, just uh, very realistic on our expectations and um, where we're at. You know, there's not a lot of smoke that he, he blows at all. Um, and I'm straightforward with what we have going on. You know, when we, we have cars that aren't where they need to be, you know, I, I talk to him about it and, you know, Obviously, I want the car to be better. You know, when he's having bad days on his side, he, he wants to be doing better, right? But, you know, there's limitations to us that prevent us from 
performing where we want to every week. And we're, we're upfront about those. Um, him and I have a really good relationship and talk openly, you know, about shortcomings of, you know, where we're at with things. And I, th I think that that open, honest dialogue really helps for us to continue to build the program. You mentioned earlier on in our chat um, that, you know, you have pushed the rules a little bit here and there. Uh, one of those times was earlier this year. You had a bit of an issue with the greenhouse, had to sit out for a week. I'm curious. I assume that you you basically watched the race and communicated, did your job from the war room back at the shop like a lot of people do. Can you take us inside those walls and what it's like for you as a crew chief who is accustomed to being atop the pit box every single yeah. week at the racetrack to be doing yeah. your job or trying to do it from the war room? Yeah, I mean, it's it, you have all the same information. You know, we're looking at the same data. We're looking at SMT data. We're watching the race and timing and scoring. And we have communication with the engineers and you have everything that you have at the racetrack and you have AC. So that's that's a little bit nicer Bless. to be cool. But, you know, you don't have that instantaneous communication. You know, you can't look at your pit crew guys in the eyes and say, hey, this is what we're doing. Um, you know, that part of it is not there. So we've done a good job replicating most of the things that we need. But that instantaneous communication, you, you don't get. And that it it's crazy how much that delays you and how hard that is to, to not have. A couple more things and I'll let you run. You mentioned those pit crew guys, right? Obviously, that's a huge, huge deal, and you got to make sure that you're ready to go with them. How would you describe your leadership style as a crew chief and a leader of the team? Um, you know, I, I think I provide an opportunity for the guys to um, do their own thing. Um, and, you know, I, I give them enough, enough um, ownership of – uh, their area of the car to kind of work on it in their own way, in their own manner. Um, and I think that that allows those guys to take ownership in what they have, um, more pride in what they have going on in order, in order to, you know, get their skill set to show through the most. So I, I feel like I'm, um, I'm a very open leader and take, you know, information from, you know, whoever has it, whoever has ideas, we try to include those into the car for the week. Um, and, you know, I think that that has been part of our success as well, because all the guys are invested into trying to make the car um, as good as it can be. Big switch coming next year to Toyota. Has that started at all for you or are you just full steam ahead on finishing this year out? Yeah, not not on the you know the race team side. We hadn't really got into it. We've met a few people. Um, you know, some of the system side of it are starting to go through and figure out what we have to do with the switch. But as far as performance is concerned, we we hadn't you know even got close to thinking about the switch yet. You know, we're still working on this season. Still, obviously, trying to produce fast race cars. And you know, I think November sixth is the Monday after Phoenix. You know, and that that'll be. That'd be all Toyota and we'll be all in on the off season to try to try to get back to where we're at right now. Well, that's November 6th. You got six races to go in this season. You guys won a race in the playoffs last year as a non-playoff driver. Do you think it's realistic to say that that's the goal for the last six races of the year for you guys to find victory lane? I think absolutely. You know, Talladega is a good race for us. Um, I think we finished sixth the last times. Um, you know, leading uh, a couple times coming to the white. Um, so definitely that's an opportunity for us. Las Vegas is going to be a huge opportunity for us. You know, be huge to get a win for Maury um, in his hometown. 
and definitely we've had some good speed out there. So we look forward to both of those races um, and then try to improve on some of the other places. Well, Dave, I appreciate your time, man. I know it's a busy time of year for you and a busy week. Uh, Got to have you back on to talk MSU and Michigan State. So I'll leave you with a go green and go get him at Talladega, my friend. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. And we are back. What a guy. What a chat. What a Spartan. Huh? Love that. And I uh, appreciate him staying just a couple minutes late. I know he's a busy man these days, as I said. So very appreciative of him. And of course, JP Payne of Legacy Motor Club for helping coordinate that conversation. Quick, painless, and easy to do with JP and Dave. So appreciate both you gentlemen for hopping on. Looking forward to having you back on, Dave, and maybe getting your driver on too to give him some crap about MSU versus U of M. I'd love that. Time to chit-chat a little bit about Texas. I have in my notes, Texas was Texas. <laughs> Just kind of is what it is, right? I mean, wasn't a bad race. Wasn't a good race. It was Texas, uh, which I think for Texas standards, as my friends Jordan Bianchi and Jeff Gluck talked about on their podcast, The Teardown, that's pretty good. Like, the, the bar is so low so that a bad race could be good considering Texas's standards. Tell you who was real good for William Byron gets the win his series high sixth of the season. They don't come much bigger than this though. Locks him into the round of eight in a very treacherous round of 12 with Texas Talladega and the Roval looming in the next week and the week after that. So William Byron's locked in Ross Chastain rebounds to finish in second. Somehow, some way that was a, an incredible display by him. I'll tell you somebody I'm worried about though. And that's the regular season champ. Martin Truex Jr., my champion, by the way. I picked him before the playoffs started. He has not finished inside the top 15 in the entire postseason. I know it's only four races, but still, something's got to give here. This is not great. This is not, not the way that a regular season champ should be performing, dipping into the kitty of the playoff points and kind of using those up before you even have a chance to get your two feet under you. And look, I understand Darlington, they had an issue in practice that didn't really get diagnosed properly, so they ran bad there. Kansas, they had the flat tire before the race barely even started, so their race is over before it started. Bristol, they're not good there. They historically have not been good there, so that was kind of a wash, but they got in by the skin of their teeth after they came in seven below the cut. So then you go to Texas, a track that is a mile and a half, suits Toyota, suits Martin Truex Jr., and they were running solid, top 10, top 15, but they get run over at the end of stage one, spin out. Martin said that they damaged the underbody of the car. Pit stops weren't great all day, and he was not happy after the race, and I don't blame him. So now he sits in a spot where he's not in great position heading into Talladega, but he's not in terrible position either. It's just in a spot where you want this team to stop snowballing things from happening. Talladega's not a good track for him, though. Super Speedway is, Mark, one of, if not, I believe, the only track type that Martin Truex Jr. has not won on in his NASCAR career. So that could spell trouble. And I know that he did win at Sonoma earlier this year. So the Roval, that should be okay. But that is a track that lends itself to unpredictability. So you never really know what's going to happen. I think Martin Truex Jr. is in trouble. But William Byron is not. He is moving on to the round of eight. And we are moving on to Talladega Super Speedway. 2.66 miles, big, bad behemoth of a racetrack. Unpredictability looms at every corner for 500 miles, the Yellowwood 500 this Sunday on NBC. 
all the remaining Cup Series races on the Big Bird, by the way. Again, given what happened to Kyle Larson at the end of the race at Texas, he has never won on a super speedway. I believe the stat is correct. Mike Baglin mentioned it today on the morning drive. Larson has not finished above 31st in four years. Years at Talladega. That is about as abysmal as it gets. So he is looking to change that fortune and hopefully be above the cut line heading into the Roval, as is Bubba Wallace, who right now is below the cut line, but he had a really, really good day at Texas. The best day he's ever had probably in a cup car in his career. Leads 111 laps from the pole, but only got three stage points, having finished 10th, I believe, in stage one, and uh, I think 9th in stage two. So he's hoping for a repeat of what happened a couple years ago at Talladega, and that is a trip to victory lane. But we will see how it all plays out this Sunday on NBC. And that'll wrap things up for episode 203 of Victory Lane 2.0. Party people, appreciate you tuning in this week and every single week. And if you haven't done so already, please consider leaving me a rating and a review. You can do that on Apple, the green app. Kathleen, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Google, SoundCloud, everywhere you find your podcast, we should be available there for your consumption. And if we are not, please drop me a line and I will try to rectify that issue for you. We will be back next week with another guest from the world of NASCAR, working on a bunch as we speak to close out the 2023 NASCAR racing season. I so appreciate you guys every week, and I will talk to you right here next week in Victory Lane. See you then.